Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Everybody and welcome to Fruit Loops episode 90. That's right. Bienvenidos bitches. Thank you for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No, 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 no. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because, well, the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. Also, we will be taking a break for a few weeks, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, no worries, y'all, because we will be back in September. Yeah. So um, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Donald Eugene Young, Jr., <laughs> I forgot the junior part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Donald Eugene Young Jr., a man who has never actually been convicted of murder, but is suspected in at least five murders. Mm, this is an interesting un- one. It and is. Uh, I got to say, when I 
was doing the research, I kept like control F convicted of murder on all the articles. Not a one. Not a one. <laughs> yeah. Like, Wait a minute. Uh <laughs> Yeah, we decided on this case a while back and I didn't realize until we started researching that he'd never actually been convicted of murder. So Yeah, yeah. But- so uh it's a little uh you know yeah it's a little it's a little yeah a little dicey a little different but it is true crime nonetheless and it's really interesting yeah very interesting and again involves people of color so here we go but before we dive into it how you doing i'm doing all right Uh, a little tired but okay Um, yeah how you doing uh, well, I'm sure our technical difficulties that we had before this episode yes. help, uh, <laughs> but here we go. The show must go on. Yeah. Uh, I am really looking forward to um, just the idea of vacation. I actually, yeah. I, um, am exhausted and yeah. everything that can go wrong is going wrong. So <laughs> woo! Uh, maybe God does hate me. Anyway, uh, no, no, that's not possible. <laughs> uh, so, but I must say that potting is like respite from my life. So I'm just happy to be here. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Hey everybody, I'll be here until the next hour. So, uh, Oh, hello. (laughs) Thank you, angels. You know, that sound really just... It's it's very... All the tension I was feeling before I heard it, it's gone now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's in the bag, Beth? So we got. How did we get this one? Um, we got this on Instagram. It was an Instagram DM from Kiera on Instagram, and they said, "Hey, y'all, just wanted to say that I love your podcast, and it is the highlight of my week. I've learned so much, and I really appreciate the emotional labor that Wendy puts into things like Culture Corner and sharing her personal stories." This week's episode was fascinating, horrific, and hilarious. I believe I heard Beth refer to the police as fucktards in the episode while you were talking about their refusal to investigate the abduction of a boy who survived. I am autistic and have auditory processing issues, so it's completely possible that I misunderstood slash misheard, but you didn't. I I said it. (laughs) They go on to say, however, if if I did not, I just wanted to reach out and let you know that any word or phrase ending in tard is a play on the slur, which is the R word, and can be really upsetting and offensive, offensive to disabled folks, especially autistics. Thank you to again for all your hard work on the show. It's such a unique and well-researched podcast, and I recommend it to all my true crime obsessed friends. So thank you, Kiara. Yes, Kiara. Let me get your hip hop air horns blue because they are very well deserved. Where is that hip hop air horn? Yeah, thank you. And I just wanted to say that I wholeheartedly apologize. And uh, one thing that we know for sure is we may not get it right all the time, uh, but we do try. And that was wrong. And I apologize. And when we know better, we can do better. So thank you for keeping us honest and helping us to be our best sexy selves. Absolutely. That goes for all of us here at Fruit Loops HQ. So thank you. Thank you. I also wanted to say that uh, my grandson was recently diagnosed as autistic Mm. and my daughter, she works in a a preschool and a a lot of the kids are autistic Mm. and uh, those are her favorite kids. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She loves the autistic kids. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. no. So obviously you have, uh, you know, uh, this is, this touches you and it, yes, in a it way does. That not a normal person. Yeah. And I felt, I felt really, really bad that I said something that might have uh, upset some people, especially autistic people. I don't want to upset anybody. And yeah. um, no, that's yeah, never, I would goal. never, never use that word for an autistic person. That's for sure. Yeah, no, again. And when we know better, we do better. Right. Yep, so yep. thanks for helping us do that. To yes. Yes. What else we got? I got one more uh, okay. from the Three Bobs via oh. Apple Podcasts. Okay, <laughs> I'm wondering what that means. I don't know. It's either one person or three people, but I don't hey. know. <laughs> <laughs> but they said, "Love Wendy and Beth. Their playful banter keeps the podcast from getting too dark and heavy, but they never lose track of why they're there." The way they make sure to acknowledge and honor the victims is what set Fruit Loops apart from the sea of other true crime podcasts out there. I enjoy the storytelling and most of all, I enjoy the wealth of information that it provides because it truly sets the stage. Hey! Yeah! So thank hey, you, Free Bobs! Hey, boo! <laughs> hey! Thank you so much. That is so sweet. Yeah! Um, and I have to say, I don't know if it's because of the New York Times shine or what, but we got a ton of wonderful five-star reviews on iTunes, yeah. which really, really helps people see the show more. Um, and we are really, really grateful for all of you who are out there supporting the show, telling your friends about us. And I also got to say that we are thankful to all of our patrons, but we got some new ones, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you to Misty Krause, Katie Shula, and EH. Uh, so buckle up, because I got some songs on my heart for you. So here's your <laughs> gift. Also, don't doubt me and if you hate it that's fine too okay <clears throat> now the dark days are done and the bright days are here my misty one shines so sincere misty one so true i love you Aww. <laughs> oh boom. next okay hey 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 buddy katie shula be dancing Dancing in September, body Katie Shula all day. <laughs> and <laughs> I like that one. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and and I say, how about a revolution? And he said, right. I say E, you say H. I say revolution, and you say da. I say E, you say H. I say revolution and you say da 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 da. And All right. For my OAR fans out there, again, right don't judge me. And I ain't sorry if you don't <laughs> like it. So now we, I, I forgot to give them hip hop air horns, everybody, for supporting the show. <laughs> That's right. Now we're going to take a quick break and we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hi, true crime recruits. I am Margot, host of Military Murder, a show where I have combined my love for the military and my love for true crime to bring you military true crime cases. It's like true crime, but instead of crimes committed by Joe Schmo, the cases I cover are committed by private Joe Schmo or veteran Joe Schmo. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. On the show, I've covered the gruesome 1993 love triangle that led to a soldier's decapitation, 
the infamous 2007 case of an astronaut who drove cross-country, allegedly in a diaper, to confront her romantic rival. And most recently, I covered serial killer BTK, who is an Air Force veteran. I hope that you'll join me and my true crime army every Monday as I navigate these military true crimes. You can find Military Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Now go on, go subscribe and listen right now. So we're back. All right. And uh, who is our subject today, Beth? Today we're talking about Donald Eugene Young Jr., a black man from East St. Louis who is a convicted rapist and is suspected of at least five murders. All right. So now we are going to get into the stats. Okay. Uh, Donald Eugene Young Jr., a.k.a. the Garbage Bag Murderer, uh, was born on June 21st, 1966, so we have reason to believe that he was a great migration baby. Uh, Young's body count hasn't been confirmed, but some sources say he has one-plus victims or four-plus victims. We just don't know. Uh, His suspected victims are Cerise Johnson, who was 33, Ramona Sidney, who was 31, and Tracy Williams, who was 38. He was suspected, but not charged in the killing of Yvette House, who was 33. He was also charged in the murder of Amy Quinton, but we'll get into that. Eventually, those charges just melted away. Um, And his MO included stabbing with a knife. Well, I guess his alleged or suspected MO included stabbing with a knife, um, assault, and uh, sexual assault and robbery and all of his victims were women um he had sexual assault domestic violence and robbery victims and charges in his rap sheet uh, which we'll get into including a woman named uh, rebecca and antonia brummond young was arrested in january of 2002 although he was charged with different murders and rapes at one point he was convicted of only one rape and sentenced to 31 years it's it's really a hodgepodge of crimes yes Uh, yes so uh we are going to set the stage for the setting it's important so here we go take us there beth so we have a couple of settings on this one the first setting is east st louis illinois which lies along the mississippi river opposite st louis in missouri and this confused me a lot when i first started started reading the articles about this case. They kept referring to Illinois and St. Louis, which I knew was in Missouri, Mm -hmm. but they were actually talking about East St. Louis, which is in Illinois. So yeah, there's uh-huh. the first confusing thing. Anyway. Yeah, yeah no, and when you look at it on a map, I don't know if we'll get to this in the script, but when you look at it on the map, they are right next to each other, just yeah, divided it's, it's by the It's all right there. Yeah, yeah they're it's all right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, a ferry station was established there around 1797. And in 1818, a village was laid out originally known as Illinois Town. Hmm. The city developed as a transportation center, beginning with barge traffic down the Mississippi and continuing with continuing with the arrival of the first railroad in 1855. Boy, oh boy, you guys need to learn about all the corruption and dirty deals behind the building this railroad system yeah. that we have and the exploitative labor of yeah. Chinese Asian and black um, servants uh, slash slaves who were um, 
uh, involved in, in building it. And anyway, the building of the Eads Bridge uh, in 1874, going across the river. Nearby coal deposits contributed to East St. Louis's growth. Meatpacking became a major industry, and after the opening of the National Stockyards in 1873 in adjoining National City, and manufacturing industries began to arrive in large numbers. At the turn of the century, East St. Louis was a thriving industrial town built by the great capitalists, including Andrew Carnegie and J.P. Morgan. The railroad played a major role in its economic growth. Factories ran 24 hours a day and jobs were plentiful. The population doubled each decade through the first half of the 1900s. But the employment of black workers in a factory during World War I led to the East St. Louis race riot of 1917. Stemming specifically from the employment of black workers in a factory holding government contracts, it was the worst of many incidents of racial antagonism in the United States during World War I that were directed particularly toward black Americans newly employed in war industries. Ooh, yeah. Uh, hot time. Um, in the riot, whites indiscriminately stabbed, clubbed, and hanged black men. We call that lynching. Women and children uh, were also subject to this violence and drove 6,000 black people from their homes. 40 black people and eight white people were killed. And on July 28th, and, and the NAACP, I was about to say the NACPA, the <laughs> The NAACP staged a silent parade down Fifth Avenue in New York City, protesting the riot and other acts of violence towards Black Americans. German propaganda magnified these incidents in, a, in an attempt to arouse anti-war sentiment in the American Black community. And President Woodrow Wilson publicly denounced mob violence and lynchings, of which there had been 54 in 1916 and 38 in 1917. Uh, yeah, I think um, I'm learning more and more about the history of lynching in um, the United States. But at some point in this time frame and in the South, people were getting lynched like every other day, every wow. at least like every three days. There's the lynching and they made a big deal about it. Like people would um, treat it as an event. Kids would oh get out of God. school. Um, thousands of people would show up to these lynchings. They sell body parts as souvenirs. Oh my God. They take pictures and sell Jesus them as Christ. postcards. What is wrong with these people? Yes. And, uh, and you look in the photos and the white people are smiling. Oh the black, my God. There's black people around, but they're there to um, be reminded of here's what happens if you if try you to do what this person step out of line. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a terrifying yeah. American. That's horrendous. Only American. I don't know if this happens in other countries, to be honest with you. Um, but anyway, East St. Louis was hit hard by the Great Depression, Depression, recovering briefly during World War II, and then began to set, suffer a decline as the need for the city's coal, rail transport facilities, and regional meatpacking center was dramatically reduced. Changes in the city's ethnic composition, three-fifths of the city's residents were white in 1950, but now con constitute only a tiny fraction of the population, were accompanied by a loss of industry and population. The city's population declined by more than three-fifths between 1950 and 2000. Mm. And what came with that was a decline in city services and economic impoverishment. Um, where did all the white people go? 
the suburbs. <laughs> I don't know if you heard the president recently, but he says he's yeah. going to protect everybody's suburbs. Yes. That's what he means by that. Um, anyway, people. yeah. Uh, by the 1960s, industries had already begun the, to abandon the city for greater economic opportunities elsewhere. Between 1960 and 1970, the city lost nearly 70% of its businesses. Unemployment soared. Residents moved out of town. The population drain continued for years. And between 1970 and 2000, the city lost 55% of its population. As businesses left and the local government struggled, the tax base shrunk. As the tax base shrunk, the local government struggled even more. Mm. The city eventually had to eliminate all but basic city services, and then even those were cut. The city couldn't pay its light bill or pay for its garbage collection. Mm. But guess who didn't have the liberty to leave, right, is yeah. uh, is, is Black people. And right. an interesting... Uh, I, I don't want to make this too long, but I think this is an important tangent because when you talk about tax revenue and the better schools are where people pay the most taxes, right. but black people historically always vote to raise their taxes because, yeah, we want better schools. We want better services. So raise my motherfucking taxes. Yeah. But uh, for obvious reasons. Right. Anyway, uh, so streetlights and stoplights were turned off and abandoned lots became dumping grounds for trash. Police and fire protection were spotty at best. Buildings began falling down. Crime and unemployment rose. Poverty became a way of life. East St. Louis had a great concentration of poverty and no middle class. It's a little better these days, but not by much. Donald Young Jr. and Maury Travis, who we covered in episodes 18 and 19, were both active at the same time around St. Louis, and both are black men. Travis was arrested six months after Young. Mm, interesting. Kind of reminds me of those other places and times where there are multiple serial killers operating at once. Mm. Yeah. Currently in East St. Louis, there have been 453 plus unsolved murders for the past two decades. The homicide solve rate in East St. Louis, Illinois is 25 percent. Yeah. Give more money to the police department. They're doing great. (laughs) In the last census, the racial makeup of the city was about 98 percent black, 1 percent white, 0.19 percent Native American or indigenous and 1 percent Latinx. By contrast, our next setting, which is Salt Lake City, Utah, the capital and most populous city in the state of Utah, is very, very white. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> white hot. <laughs> Between 1860 and 1950, white people accounted for 99% of the population. It's a little better now with whites taking up about 73% of the population. Hmm. The second largest ethnic group is Latinx at about 22%. Hmm. Black people take up just over 2% and just under 2% are indigenous people. Oh boy. Um, Salt Lake City, not not number one on my list of places to go no, for those no. statistical reasons. Never wanted to go there for any no, reason. No, I'm good. Uh, was founded. <laughs> sure, it's a lovely place, and I'm sure I'm sure some of them are very nice people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure there's nice people on both sides. Anyway, yeah. Salt Lake City was founded <laughs> in 1847 by Brigham Young and other Mormon followers. They were looking for an isolated area to practice their religion, uh, Mormonism, a.k.a. the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Latter-day Saints or 
just LDS, has a long history of discrimination. I think maybe you'll get into this, but they didn't even allow black people in the right. church. Yep, that's what's next. Okay, sorry. <laughs> the church's first presidents, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, claimed that black skin was a result of the curse of Cain or the curse of Ham. Oh. And they used their beliefs in these biblical curses as justification for slavery. Mm, they must not be aware of Beyonce's Blackest King album. Because no. She tells us <laughs> the very opposite. Uh, Young believed that the curse made black people ineligible to vote, marry white people, or hold the priesthood. Successive church uh, presidents continued to use their beliefs in in these biblical curses as justifications for excluding black men from the priesthood ordination and excluding black men and women from the church's temples. Can't sit foot here! (laughs) This is important because all Mormon men and boys who reach the age of 12 in the LDS church are required to receive the priesthood ordination in order to hold leadership roles. Since black men could not receive the priesthood, they were excluded from holding leadership roles. Kind of reminds you of other um, bureaucratic entities in these United States. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, anyway, and temple ordinances are necessary in order for members to receive the endowment and marriage ceilings, which are necessary for exaltation, the highest level of salvation, to eternally live in God's presence, become gods themselves, and continue as families in the afterlife. So black members were barred from exaltation. Yeah. So what's the point of even being in this religion? Nothing, if you guys. Can't, yeah. Can't, can't have here. these things. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good point. <laughs> After Joseph Smith's death in June of 1844, the movement experienced a leadership crisis, which led to a schism within, within the church. The largest group, which would become the LDS Church, followed Brigham Young, settling in what would become Utah Territory. Other denominations within the movement either formed around various would-be successors of Smith or else broke from denominations that did. There are currently 12 different denominations within the church. The priesthoods of many other Mormon denominations, such as the Community of Christ, Bickard Tonight, and Strangite, uh, have always been open to persons of all races. I did not know that. Thank I you. did not either. I didn't know that there were 12 different denominations. I either. know. And that others That's... were welcoming. That's what yes. I see. Yeah, interesting. There we go. Mm-hmm. In 1978, LDS Church President Spencer W. Kimball declared a revelation had been received that the time had come to end these restrictions. After this revelation, Black men could hold priesthood offices and Black members could be granted temple admittance. Since that time, the number of Black members in the LDS Church has grown rapidly due to the policy change and increased outreach, especially in Africa. That's interesting. I actually went to high school with a lot of Mormons. Oh, really? Yes. Um, But one of them was Black. Oh, wow. Yeah. Would you believe it? (laughs) And he wasn't adopted. He was born into it. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, uh, the Mormon settlers applied for statehood in 1849 under the name Deseret, a word from the sacred book of Mormon meaning honeybee and signifying industry. This bid was rejected as were the efforts of five subsequent constitutional conventions between 1856 and 1887. Yeah. So anytime you see the word Deseret uh, attached to anything, it's probably a business or whatever that is owned by a Mormon. Get out of here. I've never seen that word. 
ever other than in the script really uh, yeah no never huh because uh, there's like there's uh, businesses around here uh with deseret in the name like deseret huh. industries it's a thrift store and there's other ones too but i live in mesa so there's a, oh, there's a lot of mormons here yeah you know what yeah. that's a good point beth i'm glad you made right. that distinction i forgot about that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we call we call over here ouch ouch where you live <laughs> i i don't say this but i've heard people call people who live in mesa the shit kickers Aww. i don't know what that means <laughs> but uh I, I think it means like uh cowboys or something like uh pe- rural people you know they're kicking shit around i don't oh, know oh okay well you like, know, we're, like we're living out in the middle of nowhere or something, which is not true. No, it is. You're, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of industry and houses and businesses and stuff. Yeah. I mean, when we first moved here, it was um, there wasn't as much over here. There was a lot of fields and cows and stuff like that. But it's all built up now mm-hmm. um, all the way out to uh, what? Queen Creek. <laughs> Right. So, also a large Mormon population. So Yeah, yeah. And Gilbert is a, a large Mormon population there too. So Yeah, yeah. Um this has been uh, Arizona <laughs> Corner with Wendy. Arizona Mormon yeah. Corner. Yeah. <laughs> We're not Mormons. We just see them no. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, before the U.S. Congress and the National Administration would assent to statehood for Utah, Mormon leaders were required to discontinue the church's involvement in politics through its People's Party, withdraw from an economic policy in which Mormons dealt primarily only with each other, and discontinue the practice of polygamy. Uh, Disputes with the government over Mormon practice of polygamy worsened until, in 1957, President James Buchanan declared the area in rebellion and began the Utah War. I'd never heard of this. An armed confrontation between Mormon settlers in the Utah Territory and the armed forces of the United States government. Wow. Over people's beliefs. Yeah. Their religion. Very interesting. The confrontation lasted from May 1857 to July 1858. There were some casualties, mostly non-Mormon civilians. The war had no notable military battles. In 1890, the LDS Church began to abandon polygamy, paving the way for Utah's statehood in 1896. Salt Lake City is currently the headquarters for the LDS Church, but under 50% of the population of Salt Lake City belongs to it. Um, Which is funny because when I would meet people from Utah in college, like I just... That was always my first question. So are you Mormon? Yeah, I always assumed. (laughs) I always assumed. But uh, to be honest with you, most of them were. But I do have some who are not. Uh, So that statistic is, it it makes sense. This is lower than in the rural areas of Utah, where LDS members account for 62% of Utah's population. The fundamentalist Mormon movement, or FLDS, emerged in the early 20th century when its founding members were excommunicated from the LDS church, largely because of their refusal to abandon the practice of plural marriage. There are splinter groups, but for the most part, this is the group that follows Warren Jeffs as their prophet. People often confuse FLDS with LDS, but they are totally different. And these are the ones that wear the funny dresses and have the funny hair and Mm -hmm. and, uh, the men that have uh, multiple wives and all that stuff. 
But also, I don't know if you remember the um, critically acclaimed show on, uh, maybe it was Live. Big Love. Big Love. No, yeah. not Big Love. The no, reality love. show. Oh, yeah. Um, I never watched. Yeah, Sister Wives. I never watched that one. I watched not Big Love, though. did I watch the show, I met <laughs> the husband. What? Uh, yes. And boy, oh boy, is he a dreamboat. <laughs> what? In, in person, yeah, he's got this, like, beautiful, long, flowing hair and, like, this um, billowy chest. Yeah. <laughs> Very broad shoulders, like, woo! <laughs> if old Whitey was... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I can't get down with the sister wife thing. But, yeah, no, uh, no thanks. Yeah, I was... It, it's, I, I love the show because that lifestyle is so foreign to me and very fascinating. Kind of like true yeah. Well, it it is interesting and I don't really care if people want to live that way. It doesn't matter to me. And, and some of the, um, the women enjoy having, like you said, sister wives because they, you know, have other women that they can talk to and and be friends with and help. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, not for me. Yeah. (laughs) I have a hard enough time with one person, (laughs) 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 let alone a whole bunch of people in a marriage. (laughs) Okay, well, I won't turn tune into any of those shows like expecting to see you on them. No, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be there. <laughs> in <laughs> in its spring 2005 intelligence report, the Southern Poverty Southern Poverty Law Center added the FLDS Church on its list of hate groups because of the church's racist doctrines. Tisk tisk, but also not surprise, uh, which includes its fierce condemnation of interracial relationships. Warren Warren Jeffs has said that the black race is the people through which the devil was has always been able to bring evil unto the earth. Really, Mister Jeffs. So you know, just another reason to hate Warren Jeffs. Yeah, aside uh, from all the uh, you know sexual stuff, right? Child rape and all that. Child stuff. rape, yeah. Mm. <laughs> So now we're going to get into Donald Eugene. (laughs) That is a tongue twister. Let me tell you. Donald Eugene Young Jr.'s early life. Hit it, Beth. So Donald Eugene Young Jr. was born on June 21st, 1966. He is originally from East St. Louis, Illinois. We could not find anything out about his early life, uh, nothing about his family. His family was never mentioned in any articles or court papers that we found. So... Sorry. Sorry, lo siento, pajarito. Um, he had a long criminal history that included grand theft auto, sexual assault, and domestic violence that led to time in and out of prison. He committed crimes across the United States, uh, including in California, Utah, and Illinois. Uh, Young lived in Utah off and on between 1992 and 1999. We don't know why. It's possible he had family there or job opportunities. Who the hell knows? Yeah. we're going to get into the timeline and the crimes. So on February 6th, 1994, Young drove through a double fatal accident scene at more than 100 miles per hour where Utah Highway Patrol Officer David Excel was controlling traffic. It was so dangerous, Excel said. It just made me angry. So I started to follow him. 
Young was in a stolen car taken in a California hijacking. Uh Uh-oh. The chase ended when Young rolled the vehicle during the high-speed chase in southern Utah. Young received a five-year sentence in Utah Department of Corrections for failing to obey an officer. Not sure what happened with the carjacking. Maybe there was a plea deal, but he got a five-year sentence. All right. During the time of his imprisonment, Young was released on parole at least three times, but always returned to prison for some violation. In 1996, Young was convicted of assault and domestic battery. In 1997, he was convicted of domestic assault. And in 1998, he was convicted of kidnapping and domestic assault. Young served most of his time in maximum security due to his disciplinary problems. On November 7, 1996, a 23-year-old University of Utah student named Rebecca, who doesn't want her last name published, Mm. so we're not going to say it, was walking home from a night class when she was attacked. She was almost home when the attacker knocked the woman down and dragged her into an alley where she was beaten, forced to perform oral sex, and raped. Before he fled the scene, the rapist took $16 from Rebecca. And at the time of this attack, Young was still on parole. Mm. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show 
and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. DNA was recovered from a rape kit. At the time, the statute of limitations for rape cases in Utah was just four years, although in 2008, the Utah legislature did eliminate the statute of limitations for first-degree felony sex crimes, crimes, including rape. Good move, Utah. But in any case, four years later in 2000, the statute of limitations was approaching. In March of 2000, still having no match from the DNA or any suspects, the state charged John Doe, an unknown male, with two counts of aggravated sexual assault and one count of robbery in Rebecca's case, identifying the unknown assailant by DNA profile only. That's interesting. I was just thinking because they collect the DNA of prisoners. Right. And so... Maybe they forgot or maybe they, no, didn't, I do think they didn't. Yeah, I don't think they did that back then. Mm, OK, back in 2000. OG a true crime comes through every time. On August, <laughs> on August 3rd, 1999, Aaron Warren, 19, went to the apartment of Lynn Drebs, uh, 37, and Amy Quinton, 22. Aaron was dropping off her cat to Lynn to look after her because she was going on a trip to Alaska. Amy, a theater student at the University of Utah, was studying in her bedroom for her German final, which was the next day. Aaron and Lynn chatted on the patio, then went inside to watch a movie and eat pizza in Lynn's bedroom. Mm, Sounds like a fun, regular night for college gals. Around midnight, Lynn left her room to get more pizza, and Aaron heard her scream. When Aaron looked out, she saw a man holding a knife at Lynn's throat. Aaron ran to Amy's room and told her to call 911, but the man pushed his way in and hung up the phone. When the 911 dispatcher called back, the man answered. The 911 dispatcher said, Hi, this is Catherine from Salt Lake City 911. We've just received a hang-up call from this number. The man told her, We're okay. It was a mistake. The dispatcher said, Well, unfortunately, we have to send officers out. To which the man answered, Okay. And the dispatcher asked, So why don't you tell me what the problem is? The man then hung up the phone. The 911 operator attempted to call back, but the phone went unanswered. Oh, boy. Um, so, in theory, officers are on the way, right? That's what right. they're supposed to do. Uh, yep. According to Aaron, the intruder had an in-control but demanding demeanor with the women in the apartment, but switched to a very relaxed voice while speaking to the dispatcher and then resumed his original demanding attitude. The man threw a roll of duct tape onto the bed and told the women to tape themselves up, but then apparently changed his mind and demanded their wallets. He probably realized he was running out of time. Mm -hmm. In any case, he took the wallets and began to leave. But when Aaron asked him if she could keep her identification, he came back. Lynn later described his demeanor as angry to an extreme. Oh, my God. Um very terrifying incident. Yeah. Uh, the intruder hit Lynn in the head and stabbed both Aaron and Amy. Aaron was stabbed in the gut, nearly slicing her liver in two. Lynn uh, later testified that she saw Amy standing with a ha- with uh, a hand on her chest. Then she fell face down onto the floor, making no attempt to break her fall. She had been stabbed in her heart. Aaron and Lynn thankfully survived the attack. 40 minutes after the murder, one of the victim's debit cards was used to purchase gas in Parley Summit outside of Salt Lake City, and 11 hours later, it was used again in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. 
it was never used again. Amy Quinton was only two final exams away from graduating with a degree in theater at the time of her death. Um, Very unfortunate. That year's theater season was dedicated to her, and she was posthumously granted a degree from the University of Utah. On March 25th, 2000, Amy Quinton's murder was featured on America's Most Wanted. Between February and May of 2000, the bodies of five women were found in a six-block area of East St. Louis, Illinois. Three were found in similar type garbage bags and discarded in weeded lots in the southern part of East St. Louis. The women were all from East St. Louis and all were reportedly sex workers known to police. Do we know if they were all women of color? I assumed that they were, but... Um... I think I think that they, they were, yeah. Okay. On uh, February 2nd, 2000, a stray dog that neighbors called Roscoe was found carrying a human bone. He led police to the bodies of Cerise Johnson, who was 33, and Yvette House, also 33, who had been dumped in a field of high weeds near 20th Street. They were acquaintances and had at one time been neighbors and were known to frequent the same areas. The field where the remains were dumped was near a railroad bridge called the Black Bridge in the southern part of East St. Louis. Cerise was found stuffed in a garbage bag. Yvette was pregnant with her 12th child when she was murdered. Wow. She was found near Cerise, but not in a garbage bag. The bodies of Ramona Sidney, 32, a mother of six, and Tracy Williams, 38, and mother of three were found in the same area on May 18, 2000, when someone reported seeing a dog gnawing at a human thigh bone. It was Roscoe again. Roscoe come <laughs> through. And he again led police to the bodies of Tracy and Ramona. They should have just made given this dog a badge right then and there, Uh, who were found under the Black Bridge. Their badly decomposed bodies were stuffed in separate green plastic garbage bags. Another victim, Mary Shields, 61, was found on July 31st, 2000, within four blocks of the other four women. She had been strangled to death. She had not been placed in a garbage bag. At first, police believed that her murder was the work of the same killer, but later they suspected that she may have actually been a victim of Maury Travis. Mm. On December 29th, 1999, Antonina Brummond, whose mother called her Nina and others called her Freckles, was attacked by a man who bound her hands and feet with electrical tape. She was beaten with a belt and pool cue and raped. She was somehow able to escape her attacker, but she who uh, was identified as Young. When Young's DNA matched a rape kit taken from Antonina Brummond, he then also became the prime suspect in the garbage bag murders, and Antonina became a witness in the murder case against Young. Sounds promising. A roll of garbage bags was seized in from Young's house in East St. Louis, which, by the way, overlooked the dump sites where the women's bodies were found. Police reportedly ran comparisons between the bags from Young's home and the ones containing the bodies. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the, the arrest. What do you got for us, Beth? In June of 2002, Young, who was already in jail on the Brummen rape charge was charged in the garbage bag murders of the three East St. Louis sex workers, Cerise Johnson, Ramona Sidney, and Tracy Williams. He was also a suspect, but not charged in the killing of Yvette House. So um, when did Yvette die? Uh, I think uh, she was found with Cerise Johnson, but she was the only one who was not in a garbage bag. Okay. On August, uh, in August of 2002, two Salt Lake, Lady, Tulsa, 
Boy, oh boy, two Salt Lake City police officers traveled to the jail in Illinois where Young was being held. The officers obtained a blood sample from Mr. Young and delivered it to the Utah State Crime Lab the next day. The DNA profile obtained from the blood sample matched the DNA profile of the John Doe named in the information filed in Rebecca's case in March 2000. In Illinois, Young faced three counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Cerise, Ramona, and Tracy. Young had also been charged with two counts of aggravated criminal sexual assault and one count each of criminal sexual assault and unlawful restraint in the Antonina Brumman case. A trial date on those charges was set for March 28, 2004. But on March 18, 2004, Illinois prosecutors announced that their key witness in that case, Antonina Brumman, had been murdered. Unrelated to Young's case, on March 6th, because Young was in custody, so Obviously, you couldn't do it. On March 6, 2004, three weeks before Young was set to go on, tr- on trial, Antonina was found beaten, stabbed, and strangled to death in an abandoned candy store. I find this story, this part of the story, really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Did you see a picture of Antonina? I did. I saw a picture of her smiling. Yeah. And I heard stories that she was like looking forward to like turning her life around and getting her kids back and like. I don't know if you get into that in the script. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't. But okay. um, I was just going to say she was like, cute as a button. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they called her the girl with deep eyes and deep dimples. I don't know. All I remember is the the nickname uh, that she had freckles because she had freckles across her cheeks. Yeah. Again, yeah. very, very beautiful sort of angelic looking picture of her. So, yeah. And, and yeah. You, you get into the story thinking like she's going to like solve She's going to be the the the, the one that, that brings bring everything together. together. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, then she gets then murdered. Instant. Yeah. And I've seen her name on um, Maury Travis's list of suspected murders. Oh. So he may have killed her. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, uh, prosecutors at first decided not to seek the death penalty in the murder charges after Bremen was killed. Her death also forced prosecutors to drop the charges stemming from her attack. But Young remained in prison on the murder charges. Four years later, on May 22, 2008, Young was also charged with Amy Quinton's murder in Utah. The Salt Lake City District uh, Salt Lake City County District Attorney's Office has never explained why Young was a suspect in Quinton's murder for seven years before they actually filed charges against him. But prosecutors claim to have strong evidence against Young, including a positive ID from one of the victims. Quote, we know that defendant Young was in the area of Salt Lake at that time. There was an acquaintance of his who had seen him in Salt Lake just that evening, one of the prosecutors said. In February 2009, after Young had spent nearly seven years in an Illinois jail without trial, prosecutors there dropped the murder charges against him, which is crazy, citing questions about the honesty of the lab technician and the loss of Antonina Brumman. That's not funny, but man, seven years. Yeah, yeah. State attorney Robert Hayda wrote that his office, quote, became aware of credibility issues with an essential state witness involved in the collection and chain of custody of evidence. He also wrote the witnesses credibility issues substantially impair the people of the state of Illinois's ability to prosecute. So that's awful. Yeah. I mean, just because she was a sex worker. 
Um, no, no, it was the um, the, oh, the crime lab. Rate. It was like a lab technician. Oh well, imagine how many other cases exactly were affected by were tainted yes. by this technician. Yeah, yes, awful, awful, awful. So once once uh, these people who um, work in the labs as uh, investigators, whatever, um, if if they have credibility issues, it can taint all the cases that they touch. Yeah. So yeah, it's and and it's a shame. It is a shame, but I wonder how rare it is. I mean, Netflix just released, not just released. We we shouted it out before. There's a whole ass documentary about two crime lab technicians who are like stealing drugs from the evidence locker and like yeah. lying about this and that. I mean, just crazy. So anyway, yeah. Uh, Utah then requested his extradition, and Young was extradited on February 28th, 2009, and booked into the Salt Lake City County Jail on March 2nd, 2009. He appeared in court the next day and was advised of the charges against him from the 1996 attack on Rebecca. In November of 2009, prosecutors made a global offer to Young. Plead guilty to one count of aggravated sexual abuse and one count of capital homicide and will recommend life with parole, plus all the other charges will be dropped. Young's attorney, Michael Misner, encouraged him to take the offer, but Young refused. I wish we knew why. You know. Um I, I think I know why. Oh, okay. Well, you have to tell us in your takeaways. <laughs> uh, uh, we- I'll get to it when we get there. Okay. So a week or two later, Misner says he received the evidence from the prosecutors that the male DNA found in Quinton's apartment was not Young's. He alleges prosecutors withheld that evidence from the defense for 18 months and through five rounds of discovery in which prosecutors are obligated to provide their evidence to the, the defense. Misner also claimed that prosecutors did not provide the full amount of discovery evidence he believes exists in the case. Misner said that he got only four pages of DNA information from the Salt Lake County District Attorney's Office, but when he went to the private lab that handled the DNA and paid a fee, he got 300 pages of information. Holy shit. Um, That is, that's really um, terrible terrible despicable um and that's your justice system folks um (laughs) evidence included dna found on a phone allegedly used by the assailant in the quinton apartment as well as dna on duct tape and according to misner the dna does match a male but not young but the lead prosecutor said that they received the dna report only shortly before they provided it to the defense not 18 months aside from saying that one of quinton's roommates identified young as the murderer years ago, the prosecutor would not discuss the DNA or any other evidence that might tie Young to the Quinton murder. Come on, guys. Uh, Michael Misner also complained that prosecutors change facts from case to case as it suited them. Um, Yeah, they do do that. In Rebecca's rape case, Young's attorneys forced prosecutors to prove that the charges were filed within the statute of limitations. A detective testified that Young had left Utah in March of 1999. That suited the prosecutors then, Misner says, because the statute of limitation tolls or stops accumulating when the defendant is out of state. If that's true, Misner argued, Young couldn't be responsible for the Quinton murder because he was not in Utah from March 1999 to February 2009. After an evidentiary hearing, the court ruled on December 8th, 2009, that the preponderance of the evidence, um, that means that uh, it doesn't have to be beyond a reasonable doubt, just like good enough to 
make you believe whatever the prosecutors say, um, showed that the statute of limitation told beginning March 1999, which implied that Young had left the Utah left Utah several months before Quinton was murdered. Misner wanted the case dismissed on those grounds, but prosecutors said it's for a jury to decide whether Young was in the state to kill Quinton, regardless of the judge's ruling. Um, so now we're going to get into the trial. So Young's trial regarding the assault and rape of Rebecca began on December 11th, 2009 and lasted for four days, which is, I don't know if rape charges, if, if they're, they're that long, but murder charges, right? Usually go, Usually trial go on a lot for longer weeks and months. Yeah. Yeah. On December 16th, 2009, a jury convicted Young of all charges. In 2010, the judge imposed the maximum, maximum, maximum sentence. Why can't I talk today? Get today be over. <laughs> maximum <laughs> sentence uh, possible on the three charges for which Young was convicted, two counts of aggregated sexual assault, of first degree felony, and uh, robbery, a second degree felony. The sentences were ordered to run consecutively, and Young was sentenced to 31 years to life in prison for the 1996 sexual assault of Rebecca. Young appeared expressionless and declined to make any statement. Yeah, I haven't been able to find any interviews with him. I don't no. know if you have. Okay. Nope. Um, Young still faced capital murder and eight other felonies in connection with the stabbing death of Amy Quinton, for which prosecutors said they would seek the death penalty. During the preliminary hearing in 2009, Aaron Warren pointed across the courtroom and identified Donald Young as the man who stabbed her 10 years prior and then killed Amy Quinton. She said that she was 100% certain that he was her attacker. The other survivor, Lynn Drebs, also testified that this it was Young who attacked them in her apartment. Well, people just aren't good at identifying people um, of other races. Yeah. So. Yeah. And um, eyewitness testimony is notorious for being wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's not it's not good <laughs> nope not one bit especially in a case deciding somebody's fate yeah i'll get into that in my takeaways but yeah yeah agreed hmm. at the same 2009 preliminary hearing prosecutors presented no fingerprints or dna evidence linking young to quentin's death and michael misner argued in court in july of 2011 that the testimony of the two eyewitnesses should be excluded from the trial because the two women never identified young until he was in court that's some good lawyering Mm -hmm. Uh, She picked him in the courtroom, Misner said, after the hearing on the reliability of eyewitness testimony in the case. The one black person sitting at the defense table in an orange jumpsuit with chains. You can't be any more suggestive than that. Uh, Give this guy a hip hop (laughs) air horn. (laughs) Yeah. And in November of 2012, prosecutors were forced to dismiss the case due to evidentiary concerns. A one sentence order asking for all of the charges to be dismissed without prejudice was filed, meaning prosecutors can still file charges against Young in the future in connection with Quinton's death. Uh, where are they now? Well, Amy Quinton's mother told reporters that she was convinced that Young was responsible for her daughter's death. But Amy's murder is still listed on the Utah Utah Department of Public Safety website as an unsolved murder. When Young came up for parole in 2017, Rebecca attended. She pleaded with the parole board to make him serve his full sentence. Please don't schedule any more hearings and please impose a life sentence, she said. She said that she still 
still has nightmares and suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. Sitting next to Rebecca at the hearing was Sherry Quinton, Amy's sister. She came to offer support as Rebecca spoke. Rebecca and I have become sisters through the tragedy, she said. Quote, I appreciate her willingness to speak out on behalf of everyone else who is not here and can't speak out. End quote. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Young, for the first time, admitted at the hearing that he was responsible for the attack, even though he added that he didn't remember it. Huh. I don't actually remember the incident because it was like 20 years ago, he said. He claimed that he couldn't say why he did it. Quote, I know what I did was wrong, he said. It would be hard for me to tell you what's going on in my mind without any treatment. However, he denied that there were any other victims. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, and the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole denied his parole. His next parole hearing is scheduled for February 2040. The board has ordered mental health treatment and sex offender treatment for Young before that hearing. And Young is currently housed at Utah State Prison. So now we're going to get into what we think made uh, Young snap and our takeaways. So... Hit it, Beth. So without knowing anything about his early life, it's it's really hard to say what made him snap. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> Big fat question mark. Yeah. I found this case really frustrating because there was so little information. Woo, I'll say. Yeah. Also, the information that was available was really confusing. Like, it was hard to figure out how Antonina Brumman's attack was connected to the murders in East St. Louis because most of the articles didn't say. They just Uh mentioned her and and the attack, but they didn't say what the connection was. We had to kind of do some digging to figure that out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also, the investigators and the prosecutors were messy-ass hoes. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) Call them as a season. Yeah, two cases got totally fucked up, and I was also struck by the fact that none of the articles in the Eamon 
Amy Quinton murder case mentioned that the suspect was black. Oh, my God. I guess he must have been because they charged Young with the murder, but I don't recall seeing that information anywhere, which is weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound to me like Young was guilty in the Quinton murder. I agree. Um, and that's what I was going to say earlier when he didn't want to take the, the plea deal. Mm-hmm. I think it was because he is innocent of that particular murder. Yeah. So he was like, no, no, I'm not doing it. Right. You know, right. but if you draw a line from Salt Lake City to where the credit card was used in uh, uh, wherever that Parley Summit and Ooh, you really Steamboat put your Springs, OG, OG I did. I went, I went in to Google Maps. Uh-huh. And if you follow that and you just keep going, you go straight to East St. Louis. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So okay. I can see why he was a suspect. I mean, he's a black man and they all look alike, right? Of course. <laughs> and he was a black man in Salt Lake City. Rare. Yeah. And he black. was guilty of a sex crime. And so I can see why he was a uh, a suspect. But once the DNA came back as not his, I think they should have dropped it immediately. Sure. But- yeah. But they, they didn't. They wanted to keep going. And uh, it sounds like the prosecutors in that case were playing fast and loose with the facts. Mm-hmm. And there were other inconsistencies, too. Like they said, Young was identified by one of the victims, quote unquote, years ago. But then they said they identified him in court for the first time. So I don't know. Um, it's possible that the news articles got it wrong. But mm-hmm. in any case, it's really hard to know what the truth is in yeah. that case. Yeah. And um you know, I, I don't usually have very nice things to say about prosecutors. I don't in this case either. Right, right. Um, but prosecutors have basically unlimited resources, right? They can, yeah. they have all the money. Um, they have literally um, an investigative force in the police force, right? Mm-hmm. Everything in the labs, everything that a defense attorney and a, and a person who's defending themselves doesn't have. Right. And um, it just seems so inappropriate, disgusting, egregious for them to have clear evidence that this guy didn't do this one thing, but them still pursue pushing it. One yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, Beth, I agree with you a hundred percent. You're not going to see me be like, but actually, like, I'm not going to well actually my way out of this at all. But this case was confusing to research. Yeah. And I have gone through so many index cards and red string to pull this one together in my head. And it's interesting because as far as, um, like true crime is concerned, the cases, the articles, everything was primarily victim centric, right? That's how you had to, that's, that's the only way I could find information about Donald Eugene Young, right? By searching for the victims. The victims, yeah. And it really goes back to the beginning of Fruit Loops, where we, we shouted out that Psychology Today article, that the media just can't get enough of a white female female victim. And um, a common trope is that black men are going to come into your communities and they're going to rape all the white women and like steal your children. They're just going to rape everything, um, <laughs> which has made black people terrifying to um, the white masses. And it's been a justification for hundreds of years for lynching, for the tough on crime approach, Hillary Clinton and her these super predators bullshit statement, policing and the problems that we have today with white supremacy and the justice yeah. 
system and all the things. Right. And I have, if I haven't said it before, um, I'm going to say it now. <laughs> you know who historically is doing most of the raping, pillaging, and murder in the world since the beginning of time? White men! White yeah. dudes! Yeah. So, uh, it's just so bass backwards yeah. um, who's getting the brunt of the quote-unquote justice. Also, the eyewitnesses thing is a huge problem and continues to be so, the eyewitness testimony. It's difficult for everyone to identify and distinguish pe- people across racial lines. Um, and there are stats around this. I don't have them in front of me, so don't fact check me. But <laughs> unfortunately, it has contributed to the disproportionate numbers of BIPOC people behind bars. Right. Um, forensic evidence should be crucial in deciding people's fates period. Yeah, agreed. So now we are going to get into how not to get murdered. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Okay, here goes, folks. Uh, It goes without saying that the best way to fight crime is to create a society where people don't have to steal, get violent, or go unhoused in the first fucking place. Yeah. But since we can't do that in one episode of Fruit Loops, let's talk about what to do during a home invasion. Now, a lot of these are throwbacks. Um, We'll have some links to them in the description box. We don't have any affiliation or sponsorships with these people. These are all just tips, y'all. Um, so prevent a to prevent a home invasion. By the way, home invasions go up as the weather um, gets warmer. Um, home invasions mm. and rapes. As ice cream sales increase, so do rapes. Uh, anyway. So don't eat ice cream. Don't eat ice cream and you won't get raped. <laughs> I learned that in statistics class. I don't know if that still flies, but you get it. You catch my drift. Anyway. Um, the best way to, to prevent a home invasion is to secure your home. Now, if you are rich, you can probably afford like all kinds of security ass systems. I don't know why people have, I assume they all have safe rooms in their house, um, butlers and shit. Like, I don't know <laughs> if you're on that level, like good for you. But if you're like regular schmegular, degular, like my broke ass, Put a beware of dog sign or a security system sign in front of your home, even if they're fake. It's enough. It's a little bit of a deterrent. It's a deterrent. If you can afford it, go with a security system. But if you can't, just putting like $5 sticky alarms on your windows is a good idea to just an just an extra layer of protection. So if your windows or doors open, um, you can at least be alerted to it, right? Um, if uh, lock your doors and windows if you are home or not. Uh, this is old school, but put a piece of wood in that sill uh, of the windows or the doors of your home. You can also purchase um, special like uh, door stops um, to prevent doors from being opened or locks being tampered with. And I'll, again, I'll put the links in the description box. Um, as I said, home invasion and rapes go up 
in the summertime. You can download a safety app on your phone to use when you are out and about, but you can also use it when you're home alone, um, right? You can just, with the push of a button, alert authorities, boom, cops are there um, if you need help. Uh, you can purchase uh, Simply Safe. They sell refurbished sy- systems, so you don't have to buy the fancy brand new one. You can buy a used one. It's still still just as good. Uh, and set it up yourself so a convicted fella doesn't have to come in your house and set it up. Um, come up with a plan for how you and your family uh, will deal with something like this. Most of us have like a fire plan, right, with our family. But do you have one in the event of a home invasion? Just something to think about. Um, consider how you will account for everyone. Where are you going to go? How are you guys going to communicate with each other? And how are you going to get help? Um, also consider how you will defend yourself in the event of a confrontation. We are not a gun family in the Wendy Williams household. And if that's your vibe, that's totally cool. You do you, boo. Um, but in our home, we all have baseball bats by our beds and by the door. So uh, no one in our house plays baseball, but we will be ready. So anything to add, Beth? Nope. Uh, those are all really good tips. Okay. Thank you. Now we're going to move on to the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color, any true crime goodies. Um, I will just list these off real quick. P Valley on stars about a strip club. Black people in the South, so good. Um, watch it. And the P stands for pussy. Boom. So it's not for your kids. Uh, also, Black is King. If you didn't know, now you do know. Disney Plus does it again uh, with Beyonce's latest visual album on, again, Disney Plus, Black is King. It is, oh my God, I've watched it four times and wow. I'm going to watch it again probably after this. <laughs> Lastly, Fight. It's a documentary about um, the work that the ACLU does, produced by Kerry Washington. The ACLU represents everybody who has rights and deserves to keep them, even the worst of the worst. But this particular documentary follows um, child separation cases, transgender people in the military and abortion rights for a young ICE detention girl. And you just follow them on their journey. It's eye-opening. It ter- tugs at your heartstrings and makes you just want to fight for people's rights for what is yeah. right. So wow. go on ahead, Beth. What do you got? Well, I stumbled across a YouTube channel that so far has been really interesting. It's called JCS Criminal Psychology. And they analyze criminal behavior and psychology using interrogation tapes, commenting on what the suspects are doing during the interrogation, how they are attempting to manipulate the detectives, stuff like that. And they also go in depth on interrogation and investigation techniques. And it's Ooh. fascinating. So if you're into that kind of thing, uh, which I am, uh, check it out. Love it. Thank you so much. Sure. Well, that's all for today, folks. Don't forget we're going on a, on a break, but we'll be back. Right. In the yep. meantime, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send a donation to the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment, even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. This is a weekly podcast, y'all, and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. 
Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com.